if you ever heard an, an argument against Christianity or against the Bible that goes, goes something like this, the Bible is full of contradictions. You ever heard that? Or the Bible's filled with errors. In one place, the Bible says one thing, and then you turn a few pages, you look someplace else, and you can find the Bible saying like the opposite of what it said earlier. Or sometimes it's worded this way. You know, people can make this book say whatever they want it to say. Ever hear that? As if that was a problem with this book and not the person trying to make it say what they wanted it to say. You can do that with anyone. I could take your words and go tell someone else what you really meant, and it could be something different than what you actually meant. The truth is about this book, it is, it's very consistent in its message from front to back, despite lots of different authors written over centuries of time. It's very clear. It's very lucid. The Bible is actually relatively easy to understand. Now, you might hear me say that and, and want to protest a bit and say, Pastor Matt, last time I sat down to read that thing, I was five minutes in. I had no idea what I was reading. That may be true. But the Bible, it was written to be understood. And relatively speaking, it's very easy to understand. And I can prove that to you. I would challenge you to pick up really any other ancient book and try reading that and compare that, the understandability of whatever else you want to read to that of the Bible, and you will agree with me. Pick up a copy of the Quran. It's not nearly as ancient as the Scriptures. And try to understand what it's saying. Or the Hindu Vedas. Or Beowulf, if you know what that is. That's a, an ancient European story. You don't even have to get all that ancient. You can go much more modern. Pick up something written by Geoffrey Chaucer or Shakespeare. If you ever have a chance to take a class on Shakespeare, don't. I'm just telling you. You can go even, even much more modern. Uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne is a modern author. He is hard to understand. James Joyce is, a, is impossible to understand. Take my word for it. The Bible is, is clear, and it's easy to understand, and it's unified in its message. However, there are some passages, especially if you take them out of the context in which they were written, you can hold up an individual part of a book and if you only read it, it really can seem like that author is saying something he's not saying, which then leads you to believe he's contradicting something even he himself wrote elsewhere or some author wrote somewhere else. And today's passage is one of those passages. Today's passage is, is a passage of Scripture that can seem like it doesn't fit with what we know from the rest of the New Testament. It's a passage that makes us go, hey, what gives? 
Because the Apostle Paul, his, his normal, his main message and the main idea of this book of Romans that, that we're studying matches this that he wrote in a more succinct fashion in the book of Ephesians. When Paul talked about how people get to heaven, how people are redeemed, how people get eternal life, Paul said things like this, for by grace you are saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one can boast. That's Paul's consistent message about how people are redeemed by God. It's just a gift God gives to those people who believe in what Jesus did at the cross. Paul's already told us that's the main idea of this book of Romans. But then in today's passage, he's going to seem to say something that doesn't agree with this. Let's read our passage first, then we'll set the context and see if we can tell what, with what gives about today's passage. Uh, today's passage is found on page 1126 in the Bibles in the, in, under the chairs in front of you if you'd like to read through one of those. 1,126, 1126. This is Romans chapter 2, and we're going to study verses 6 through 16. <clears throat> speaking about God, we actually pick up in the middle of a sentence today, but speaking about God, Paul says this, God will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good, people who seek for glory and honor and immortality, God will give eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and those who do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, God will give wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. It doesn't matter who you are, for the Jew first, also for the Greek. But... God will give glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good. For the Jew first and also to the Greek. You could add the barbarian, the American, the Nebraskan, anybody. Four, there is no partiality with God, verse 11 says. Verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not... Uh, the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively do the things of the law, these Gentiles not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, Paul says, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. That's our passage for today. And before we dive into that passage, I feel like I have to take some time to remind you of what Paul has said thus far in the book. I always like to do that, to set the context, but that's especially important today. Because whatever Paul means by that stuff we just read, it can't be the opposite of what he's already taught in this letter, and it can't be the opposite of what he's about to teach in this letter. 
And really, clearly, the main idea of the book of Romans, it showed up in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. The main idea is this. The gospel of Jesus Christ, which Paul will define later, what Jesus did at the cross, paying the penalty your sins and my sins deserve, belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only way God's power can be pointed at you and me or anyone else in a way where they are saved, redeemed, get get into heaven, however you want to say it. The gospel is the only way people are saved. That's the main idea of the book of Romans. And then Paul started in this first uh, section of the body of the letter at Romans 1.18, and that's where we've been for some weeks now. And the whole purpose of the body of the book to this point was to prove to you and to me that we need the gospel because we will not survive judgment before God based on how good we are. And not only will we not survive, God will be correct and we will agree that we have not been good enough to have eternal life based on the goodness of our lives. Paul told us the main problem of human beings is this. We've exchanged the truth for the lie. The truth is this. There's a God out there who made all this. He has given us enough evidence to know that much about him. He's real. This didn't just happen by accident. And if he made me, I am accountable to him. That's the truth. The problem is, I don't want there to be a God I'm accountable to. I don't want to spend my life trying to glorify and honor and thank God. I've exchanged the pursuit of him for the pursuit of me. I want to do what will get me noticed, what will make me impressive, what will make me happy, what will make me comfortable, what gets me praised, what gets me thanked. That's the lie. I think I can be like God. I can have the place where glory and honor and praise and thanks gets pointed at me. And when we make that exchange, Paul explained individuals and society as a whole, we just are in this spiral My pastor used to say, we are deteriorating right on schedule. The moral decay we see around us is the result of that exchange, that terrible exchange we made. I don't pursue God, I pursue me. And before long, my, my desires get twisted, my heart gets dark, my brain, my mind gets jacked up. Until before long, I'm doing stuff that hadn't ought to be done, and I don't even know it shouldn't be done anymore. I celebrate it. I make excuses for it. I think it's fine in my case. And we do that individually. We do that as society as a whole. And then God's wrath is poured out on us. But God's wrath, Paul told us last week at the beginning of Romans chapter 2, God's wrath is not when God whacks us for the terrible things we've done God's wrath is he just lets us chase what we think will make us happier than he will. 
and that continued entanglement and enticing sin and the darkness and the filth of our lives is not just what earns us God's wrath. It is God's wrath. You think you want that more than you want me. You think that will make you happier than pursuing me will make you happy. Then go for it. Because the worst thing God could do to any of us is let us distance ourselves from him. That's what Paul's told us. Our only hope is the gospel, and here's why you need it. And he's told us all of that. And the last thing Paul told us, it's the, actually the first half of the sentence we started with today. Paul just said this, but because of your stubbornness, and he's talking to people in general, you, oh man, oh woman, oh person, whoever you are, because of your stubbornness, because of your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. Now, whatever we find today, it has to somehow fit with what Paul's been telling us. Now, let's dive into today's passage. And Paul begins in verse 6. He quotes the Old Testament, but Paul begins with something that is such a common theme in the Bible before Paul that I can't even tell you for sure what Paul's quoting. Paul says, that God, and then he quotes, will reward each person according to his works, according to her behaviors, according to how she lived. Paul could have been quoting Proverbs. He could have been quoting Psalms. He could have been quoting Jesus himself. This is such a common idea. It shows up in so many places. I can't even tell you. Paul might just be even saying it from memory. As a rabbi, he knew, he knew this truth. It is the truth of Scripture. It's the clear teaching of the Bible that one day every single person who has ever lived is going to stand before the God who created them and God is going to judge that person based on the way they lived, their actions, their behaviors, what they did. Now, it's very important to understand that the people who are admitted into eternal life will not be admitted into eternal life because they have somehow passed that judgment. That God will look at your life or my life and say, you were good enough. But that doesn't take away the fact that there will be a judgment of works. Paul doesn't deal with it here. He deals with it in other places, but he explains to it. Those of us who are Christians, who are redeemed, who have accepted the gospel, who are headed for eternal life, we're still going to stand before God and he's going to like play back our lives is going to, to judge how we spent our time on this earth. And those things we did that brought him glory and praise and honor and thanks, we will get some sort of commendation for that. At a boy, at a girl. And those things we did for any other reason will be burned up. We will get nothing out of them. They will be lost. And those folks who are not covered by the gospel. The judgment, the judgment they endure will determine, I am convinced, though some disagree with me, that the level of their punishment in eternal punishment separated from God. Because God is fair. And uh, you know the, the teenager that lived someplace and never heard the gospel, lived a pretty good life, will not have to be roommates with Hitler for all of eternity. 
I don't believe. But Paul has already said the gospel is the only way God's power can be pointed at people where they are saved. But Paul says there's going to be a judgment of every person where their life, their works, their behaviors are judged. And then in verses 7 through 10, Paul says in that judgment of every person, there's only two options. And Paul makes sort of a, a judgment options sandwich here. Okay, The good news is verse 7 and verse 10. That's like the bread of the judgment results sandwich. And the, uh, the stuff inside, the bad news, is, is found in verses 8 and 9. So there's two options in judgment. First, verse 7 and 10, God, when he judges your life, my life, anyone's life, God will give eternal life to anyone who this is true about. They persevered in good works. They sought glory and honor and immortality. Skip down to verse 10. Glory and honor and peace will be given by God to everyone who does good. The other option shows up in verses 8 and 9. God will give wrath and anger to those who live in selfish ambition and don't obey the truth, but they follow unrighteousness. There's going to be affliction and distress on everyone who does evil. That's the two options. Now, if we read that just by itself, and you might be reading it right now, and think, Pastor Matt, that says there are people who are going to stand before God, He is going to judge their behaviors, and He is going to tell some people they were good enough to get glory and honor and immortality. Do you know why you would think that? Because that's what Paul says. Paul says there's going to be a judgment, and anyone who has persevered in good works, who has sought glory and honor and immortality, anybody uh, who does good in their lives, God will say, you're good enough. Enter into your rest. Everyone else is stuck here in verses 8 and 9, and they get wrath and anger because they lived in selfish ambition and all that. Now, why has Paul not contradicted himself if that's what Paul says? Well, let's take verse 7 and verse 10 and sort of put that back through what we've learned thus far in the book of Romans. How many people, when they stand before their creator, will be able to, and God presses play on their life, how many people will be proven to have persevered in good works, sought glory and honor and immortality and done good. How many people will stand before God and that's what God will come, the verdict of their life will be that. How many? None people. That's how many people. See, we are the ones who have enough evidence to know there is an eternal God who deserves glory and honor and from whom comes immortality, but we have exchanged the truth of the, that the pursuit of that God is what's best for me. We exchange that for lots and lots of cheap substitutes. I mean, if, if, we are, if we're honest, do we seek with our lives, do we seek 
what is really glorious and honorable and what's really immortal and eternal. Apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, we do not. And it's not even possible. We've created futile lives for ourselves by trying to be little gods who gain glory and honor not from immortal things, but temporary things. Someone could object to what I'm saying. And the objection would go something like this. Maxwell, I do good works. I do good. I seek things that are honorable. I do things for other people. They could give me a list of what they do in the community, what they do for their family, what they do in the church. And they might get a little huffy and say, how dare you say those are not honorable, good things? Could you hear somebody saying that? Maybe you would say that. Well, I want to refute that. If you're thinking that, if you have a list of good things that you have done, I want to argue with you this morning and tell you they do not meet the standard Paul lists here. Here's why. Whatever Paul means, Paul says God will give eternal life to anybody who perseveres in good works and seeks glory and honor and immortality. Whatever that is, would you agree with me what it, that verse 8 has to be the opposite of verse 7. Isn't that what Paul is saying? God, wrath and anger to those who live in selfish ambition has to be different than the people who persevere in good works, right? So here's what I want to show you. Apart from Jesus Christ, apart from the gospel, it's impossible to do good works that aren't stuck right here in selfish ambition. Paul says God's going to give, have wrath and anger for everyone who does stuff out of selfish ambition. And apart from the gospel, I believe the, even the good things we do at our, at our heart level, at our subconscious level, are selfish. They are. At the end of this passage, Paul says, in that judgment, God is going to judge the secrets of our hearts. I think so secret sometimes we don't even know. But apart from the gospel, the good things we do are selfish. Here's how. Let's say you believe, maybe you were raised in a religion that taught this. Your judgment someday of the works of your life is going to determine whether you get into heaven or not. The good things you do better outweigh the bad things you do I had a friend one time who argued with me and told me that the, it, the judgment will be a sum, like a summative evaluation. That's a teacher term for saying like how you grade a test. The number you got right versus the number you got wrong and did you pass. He believed that's the way judgment would be. If you believe that and you are trying to do good works so that God will like you and accept you into eternal life someday... 
What is your ultimate motivation for the good things you do? Selfish ambition. Why are you doing good things? You're trying to get into heaven. That's a decent motivation, but it's selfish. What if you're a community servant and I applaud you for that? Don't hear me wrong. Doing things for other people is a good thing. But let's say, you know, I I work in the community. I I, I serve in the church. I do all these things for other people. Well, let's talk about that. What if you think, you really believe, if we all work together, we can make Imperial a better place to live? We can make Nebraska a better place to live, America, the world, a better place to live. If we cooperate and work together, we can do that. That's humanism. It's also selfish. You know why? Do you know why you want to do that? Because you want to live in a better place. You want your kids to live in a better place. It might be sort of good, but it's selfish. What if you do something out of guilt? What if you realize, man, I have been a real jerk to this guy. And you feel guilty, and so now I'm going to do something good for that person. Do you know why you're honestly doing that? You want to feel better for being a jerk, right? I feel bad because I was mean. Now I want to feel good. So I'm going to do something for that person. But the real reason I'm doing it is because I want to feel better. It's natural. It's normal. It's also selfish. Everything we do apart from the gospel at our heart of heart of hearts. It's because we want to get something out of it. We're nice to to our friends. We spend time doing this. Maybe it's so people will see me doing things and they will think better of me. I'll have more friends. I'll be more popular. Even the things we normally consider to be glorious and honorable and lasting are in fact selfish. And one day millions of people will stand before God and he will say, what did you do and why did you do it? And he will bear the secrets of our hearts and we will admit we were all stuck in verses eight and nine. That was selfish ambition. See, I'm of the opinion, Paul says something that's, it's real, but it's hypothetical. What Paul describes in verse 7 and verse 10 would actually be real if anybody could stand before God and have a life that was lived like that. God would say, you get eternal life, not because I've saved you from anything, but because you were good enough to begin with. I think that would be real because God's fair. It just ain't happening. Briefly and quickly, I want to go through what Paul says in verses 11 through 16. What Paul basically says in 11 through 16 is what I've just said is real because God is fair. He's impartial. Um, we're not going to fine-tooth comb this because he's reiterating what he said last week, and he's, 
he's starting to say what he's going to say next week. So we'll, we'll get all this information. But quickly, Paul says, there's no partiality with God. If there was, it's not like God's just mean and wants to condemn everybody. It's just, he's impartial. If somebody was good enough, God would let him in. There's just not. And God says, if you grew up in a home where you knew the word of God, the law, like we Jews, Paul would say, and we accept that what God says is right and wrong, Paul says God's just going to judge us by those standards we accept, and that's not going to go well. Then Paul says, but you Gentiles don't have it any better. You never read the law of Moses. You didn't know any of that. Paul says you are a law unto yourselves. This is what he talked about last week. In the first verses of Romans chapter 2, Paul said, we're so jacked up morally, not, not only can we not keep God's standards of right and wrong, we can't even keep whose? We can't even keep our own. Because the stuff that you make me mad when you do, I do that same stuff. You lie about me and I get furious. And then I tell lies. We could go on and on about stuff that makes us mad when other people do and we do the same stuff. Paul says, Gentiles are a law unto themselves. They don't have to have the law of Moses. They naturally do parts of it. For the most part, how many cultures say stealing and murder is wrong and disobeying parents is wrong? How many societies and cultures have said that throughout the history of the world? Only like all of them, right? That stuff's in the law. That's in the Ten Commandments. So if God just uses their own society's standards against them, he will, sh- he will show. You're like, you can't even keep your own law. Again, this section, Paul's not telling anyone how to be saved yet. He's just showing everyone they need to be saved because they won't stand before God and survive his judgment. It's going to be eminently fair. And that's why the gospel is so important. The whole first section of this book of Romans is about our need for the gospel. It's the only way any of us will be saved by God. But there's, but wait, there's more. The gospel does something else. Something awesome. The gospel is this. We could not save ourselves. We were too far gone. We're too broken. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. He was under the punishment our sins deserved. Our sins went on him. God's wrath and anger from verses 8 and 9 was poured out on him instead of us. And Paul will make clear, God will give the free gift of eternal life to those who believe that that's what he did at the cross. That's the gospel. And it saves, it redeems, but then it does something else incredible. The gospel allows you and me to do what is impossible without it. The gospel allows us to do verse 7 and verse 10. The gospel allows us to stand before God someday and actually have something to show that's not selfish ambition. I'm going to read these verses again and tell you what I mean. God's going to give eternal life to those who persevere in good works and who seek 
glory and honor and immortality. God's going to give wrath to those who live in selfish ambition. Skip down to verse 10, but God's going to give glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The gospel makes that possible for you and for me. Here's how. I argued, I tried to argue this morning that in our natural state, we can't do anything good that's not ultimately selfish. We're trying to get into heaven. We're trying to make other people like us. We're trying to get noticed, whatever it is. But the gospel does something amazing. When I really come to understand what happened at the gospel, or at the cross, in the gospel, my sin went on him, and then Paul's going to tell us in just a few weeks, when he starts telling us the gospel, he's going to tell us this incredible doctrine called justification. What justification means is legally, before God, in judgment, not only did my sin go on him, but when I believe that, God took Jesus' goodness and righteousness and he puts it on me and on you if you believe in Jesus. So when we stand before God in judgment, who do we look like? Jesus. I look like, because I believe in the cross of Christ, I look not only like I never sinned any of the sins that I've sinned because Jesus never sinned any sins, I also look like I did all the wonderful things Jesus did. I bear the blindingly white righteousness of Jesus Christ before the Father. Raise your hand if you think you could improve on that before God. No hands. Good. You can't. Now, here's what that does. Here's what that does. I have no ability through my good works to get myself before God anyway, anywhere that I'm not already. I can't improve my station with God. I'm perfect. So what does that mean? Now life's a free-for-all. I can do whatever I want. In some ways. Or you can fulfill the purpose for which you were created. Which is this. To seek what's better. Glory and honor and immortality. Who do all glory and honor and immortality belong to? God, here's what the gospel allows me to do. I can actually do something good for you in the gospel that I know is not going to get me into heaven because I'm already in. I can do something really selflessly good because it won't get me anywhere with my God that I'm not already in Christ. I can do something that makes God look good because he's already made me look good to him. That's what the gospel does. See, naturally, we don't seek what's actually glorious and honorable and immortal. We seek stuff that's temporary and foolish and it hurts me and I do it anyway. We don't seek what's immortal. We spend so much time uh, trying to keep ourselves young and beautiful and handsome. Is that going to be immortal? No. My favoriteest team of all teams just won the Super Bowl. Can I get an amen from the audience? 
and I, I've been watching videos of the microphones picking up the Chiefs on the sideline, and my, maybe my favorite football player of all time, Patrick Mahomes, said, let's do something special. They're going to talk about this forever. No, they're not. Who won the Super Bowl four years ago? We'd have to Google it. You think 10 million years from now in eternity, people are going to talk about that 44-yard beautiful pass in the fourth quarter? It's hard for me to believe I won't be, but I won't be. And if we do, we'll be talking about how God created that kid with that arm to be able to do it, and, it was, and, and he will get all the glory and the praise and the honor. The gospel gives us a chance to be able to stand before God in that judgment when he judges our works. And they'll be through the rest of the stuff that gets burned up from the stuff we've all pursued that's not really honorable, it's not really glorious, it's not really immortal. There can be something else there. You know what keeps people from really pursuing Christ and coming to church regularly and doing all that stuff? I've got all these other things I want to do and I need, and those desires are too strong. You know what God would say? No, they're not. They're too weak. C.S. Lewis said it this way, way better than I could. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and ambition and sex and money and popularity and add all your other things in there. We're fooling around with that stuff when infinite joy is offered to us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You know what he's talking about? We've bought the lie. We've made the substitution. We're pursuing stuff that's not honorable and glorious and it won't last forever. We're wasting our lives. And it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't. We can seek what is better. So at the end of our lives, we're not like uh, the couple that uh, John Piper famously read about in the Reader's Digest. He was in an office one day years and years ago, and he's reading in the Reader's Digest, and he, he reads this story about this couple, and they invested well, and they worked hard, and they retired early, and they bought a beach house on the beach in Florida and a boat, and they spent every day walking in this beautiful beach and collecting shells. And this article was written as if they were living the ultimate life, and they're not. They're wasting it. Because they're going to stand before God someday, and he's going to say, what did you do, and why did you do it? And they're going to say, but God, look at my shells. And that might be funny, but it's horrifying. Because what will we hold up? There's a chance in the gospel for somebody at your judgment to say, wait, God, I am here because that gal invited me to her church. I am here because of what he told me about you. There can be souls 
and not shells. There can be things that were done to the glory of God, and Jesus Christ will announce, literally before God and everybody, well done, good and faithful servant. That you did not do for yourself. You did that for me. You want to be, I want to be like that. And it's only through the gospel it's possible. Pray with me and we'll finish. Father God, thank you so much for the gospel that saves. It is the only way your power will ever be pointed at us in a way where we are redeemed and not condemned. But it does so much more. It unlocks the possibility that we can seek, that we can pursue what is really immortal what is really honorable, what is really valuable because it is about you and not us. Unlock that in us as we study and learn about the gospel that you would be glorified in our lives, not so that we could have more than other people in heaven someday, but just so that you would be honored and glorified. We love you. Thank you for your fairness and your justice and more than anything for your gospel. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.